Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Well, it's time to Ben Jarowski show as I speak. It is Friday, March 4th, uh, and you know what's in the headlines. Uh, I'll just read today's New York Times. Russians push to tighten grip in South. Moscow and Kiev agreed to corridors to allow civ- civilians to evacuate war in Ukraine. Uh, since the last time we talked to this distinguished guest, uh, Russia, Putin, have decided to invade Ukraine. Utter insanity. Uh, utter insanity is already always somewhere in the world, but now it's just completely unavoidable. So without a, uh, anything else in terms of an introduction, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, and we'll dive right in. Take it away, distinguished guest. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. Um, wish we were uh, talking about happier things, but that seems uh, fictional most times. So I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, um, columnist at The Week, and um, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, <laughs> How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. I almost forgot the name of my own book then. So, uh, um, and I'm, uh, I'm excited to dive into this nightmare in, uh, in Europe right now. It's a very, uh, very concerning thing that's happening. Well, I'm just going to begin by telling you something that's been on my mind that I haven't articulated yet, so I'm sharing it with you for the first time. Uh, because last night, I've been uh, obsessively, fa- my whole life, a uh, fan of Kurt Vonnegut and uh, the novelist, if anybody, millennials out there have never heard of him. Uh, and it's always possible that they haven't. Uh, so anyway, I don't know if you read him as a kid or uh, in college or what have you, but I, I, I reread him. I think the guy's a very wise man. And so there's a documentary out about Kurt Vonnegut which I urge everybody to watch. It's fascinating. Uh, it's made uh, by one of the writers for Larry David. Anyway, uh, Kurt Vonnegut died in 2007, so he did not live to see Barack Obama, Donald Trump, uh, or Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But at the end of his life, uh, David, he was passionately opposed to uh, the uh, United States invasion of Iraq, the war in Iraq, uh, and it was just filled with venom uh, directed at um, George Bush, Dick Cheney, Colin Powell for the argument uh, at the United Nations he gave. And I say all this, all, all this uh, as a way of just showing you how insane everything is 
that at this moment, George Bush is giving advice to the world and condemning uh, Putin. And I, I just don't know what to make of it. You know, I mean, there's no nobody stands for anything. George Bush launched an invasion of an independent country across the world. David Ferris with Iraq. And he slept poor Colin Powell down to the U.N. with a uh, a tall tale of a story about weapons of mass destruction. And Kurt Vonnegut was just outraged. And here we are. People are saying, well, did you hear what George Bush had to say about Putin? Up is down and down is up, David Ferris. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to hear from George W. Bush about Putin. Do you, do you remember this thing from the Bush administration when they, you know, they asked him if he trusts Putin about something, and Bush Bush was like, "I looked into his eyes, you know, <laughs> I saw I saw that he was a good man, <laughs> Some, something like that." You know, it's like I don't want to hear from the dude, you know, just because uh, not an ideal spokesman for the for the cause right now. The um, the leader who launched a completely unnecessary and unprovoked invasion of Iraq that was a total fiasco for uh, for 10 years and uh, um, just proved himself to be incapable of stewarding America's interests overseas. I mean, George W. Bush um, launched one of the most disastrous foreign policy adventures in American history. Um, and uh, yeah, he's still welcome on uh, CNN, I guess, whatever, you know, nobody's, you can't, you can't shame your way out of American public life, right? There's just, there's just no way. It's nothing you can do that you won't get invited on the shows. Um, so um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the invasion of Iraq was, a was a disastrous, um, you know, in, on its own terms, right. But also the message it sent to other countries, the, the extent to which we diminished our own moral standing when, um, we want to invade against what's happening right now. People throw that back in our faces uh, almost immediately. And what are you going to say? Um, well, we didn't mean to annex it, you know, so it's, it's different and it's like, okay, yeah, it's different, but it's still um, it still was an invasion that uh, caused the you know most widespread protests and I think in the history of the world, um, and uh, you know the sort of simultaneous demonstrations all over the world against what the U.S. was planning, and uh, just an incredible damage to our reputation and our ability to use soft power to to get what we want. And you know who else is watching that? Vladimir Putin, right? Um, Putin was watching with interest as the world's most powerful country decided that norms of sovereignty no longer applied. Um, and I think that the Iraq war was one of many turning points where Putin, as Russia was recovering from the disaster of the 1990s, um, Putin started calculating what, what he could get back um, in terms of uh, territory that was, and I don't wanna say lost, right? Because it was, it's not like people were fighting over it mostly at the end of the Cold War. But, um, you know, all those constituent republics of the USSR were just walked away with their borders intact, in, including Ukraine. And uh, probably a more, in retrospect, a more sensible process would have been to revise those borders from the start. You know, it just would have been much harder and, and, and much longer. But I think it probably could have avoided some of what's happening in, in Ukraine right now. But, um, yeah, and P Putin's going to keep pushing until until he's stopped. Um, and, the, and the dangerous thing, of course, is that lurking behind any conversation here is the reality that both the United States and, and Russia have thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at each other. Um, and, uh, something that's unlikely could happen, right? I mean, it's, uh, to say it's, it's highly unlikely is not to say that it couldn't happen. And, 
anything that increases that risk, even a little bit, um, is something you got to you think very, very hard about. So, um, yeah, we're, we're in a very dangerous place right now. A lot of the decisions made by American leaders over the last 20, 30 years have not helped, to be honest. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're kind of stuck with, with the situation as it is. We can't go back in time and, and change some of these things that we did. Um, but we can, we can make the best of the situation as, as we see it now. But uh, it's not clear that that's going to stop Putin from from finishing off Ukraine sometime in the in the coming weeks. You know, it's just it's a very sad thing to watch. All right, so um, let's sort of uh, let's start with Putin. Uh, in your opinion, what do you think is motivating a Putin uh, in this with this invasion, and what do you think his goal is? What does he want to get out of this? Sure. Um, let me let me start with the second question first. Um, in terms of his goals, I think it's clear from the battle plan that they brought into Ukraine um, that Putin's that Putin's desire here was to score a very quick victory over the Ukrainian military, kill or drive uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky, out of the country, and, and install a puppet regime in, in Kiev. You know. Um, Sort of like the you know the government in Belarus, which is um, very much in Putin's pocket, and I think he thought he could get this done because, you know, frankly, over the last fifteen years, no one's really given him any indication that that there would be serious pushback if he did this, um, and I, I don't think that he expected the level of resistance from the Ukrainian military. I don't think he ex- expected the level of problems and incompetence that you that, that appear to be plaguing the, the, the Russian forces in Ukraine. I just want to bracket everything that I say. It's hard to know exactly what's going on. There, there's a lot of conflicting information. I've never found Twitter less useful than in the last week um, because there's just just wild divergence and and reports about what's happening on the ground. Um, it's kind of just sticking with the legacy media right now <laughs> in terms of trying to figure out what's happening there. But I think unquestionably it's not gone according to plan. Um, and so instead of this, you know, very fast lightning speed, you know, um, uh, shock and awe campaign that would drive the Ukrainian government into exile and allow Putin to do what he wanted with the rest of the country. He's now stuck in a situation where, you know, he has his entire force committed to Ukraine. Um, he's going to have to engage in, in war crimes to take and hold these cities if that's what he wants to do. Um, and I, I don't know what his exit ramp is here, but the reality is that the Kiev is starting to empty out. I mean, p- people are fleeing. Um, and, and what Putin may ultimately achieve here is to, is to conquer em- empty space um, and, and drive some extraordinary percentage of the Ukrainian population into exile. I can't imagine that was his goal coming into this. Um, and uh, it, it's just, it's remarkable to me that no one talked him off at this ledge before he did it because the consequences for Russia have all, already been very severe here. Um, and uh, that's a crash of their stock market. The, the, the value of their currency has uh, has collapsed. Um, I think there's, you know, martial law is being declared in Russia. Just just a disaster, right? But the but the background here, I think, does reach back into the end of the, of the Cold War period. Uh, I don't know if you if you watched the speech that Putin gave the day that he launched the invasion, uh, which was just nuts. That's <laughs> a crazy speech. Uh, you know, he blamed everything on on Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev for some of the internal border drawing of the of the Soviet Union. He said Ukraine has no history as an independent nation. Um, 
you know, kind of kind of what um, what the Israelis used to say about the Palestinians, you know, like there's no, it's just an invented people. It's not, they're not real. Um, and uh, when you say that people have no history of sovereignty and no no uh, you know no claim to be a nation, uh, that's scary talk, right? Because that uh, that means he's probably willing to employ tactics and um, that, that are shocking and um, inhumane, and, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, I, I think that uh, Putin is a is a what we call in political science a, a revisionist. You know that is. Um, he looks at the night, you know, the historiography in the U.S. is like, you know, we won the Cold War and then we got to be buddies with Boris Yeltsin. And, you know, like Russia and the U.S. were quite friendly in the 1990s, um, even as the, the Russian economy was unraveling and all sorts of terrible things were happening in Russian society. Uh, Yeltsin and President Clinton had a very warm relationship. They were both <laughs> um, personal nightmares, I think. You know, uh, Clinton was a harasser and Yeltsin was a drunk. Um, but uh, but they, they they had a good working relationship together. But the reality is that Yeltsin presided over a period of decline, um, and, the, and the decisions that he made in 1991 and 1992 had the practical effect of extinguishing the Soviet Union, and not everybody was happy about that. Um, and once once Russia's economy started to recover in the late 90s and early 2000s, Putin came to power. Um, he, you know, he became the leader of a block of revisionists who looked at that time period at the end of the Cold War and said, yeah, this is BS. You know, um, we shouldn't have given up all this territory. Uh, we shouldn't have let all these republics just walk away without a fight. Um, we, we shouldn't have just stood by while, while NATO started its process of expansion. Um, now, I'm not somebody that really necessarily opposes the expansion of NATO. Right. But the people who who warned that it might result in this kind of relationship with Russia you know, they were right. You know, you, you could argue this would have happened anyway. We don't know because we can't rerun history. But the um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the um, what Putin sees as the imposition of uh, of victor's terms over over Russia, um, including its dismemberment, and then the expansion of NATO um, into territories that, that Putin considers to be Russia's backyard, that's his narrative, you know. Um, and he... He wants some of it back. He's he's posing as the protector of uh, of Russians in the near abroad. You know, uh, ethnic Russians who were, you know, went to sleep one night and uh, in the Soviet Union and woke up the next day as citizens of Ukraine. Um, and uh, you know, in, in his defense, they have not been necessarily been treated great everywhere, <laughs> as you can imagine, because some some of these places didn't want to be in the Soviet Union. So there's a lot of resentment there, because Soviet Union was an empire which forcibly incorporated a lot of people against their against their better judgment and against their will. So that's the historical picture here. Um, it's an attempt, I think, to not necessarily recreate the Soviet Union per se, but to enlarge Russia's borders to encompass um, most, if not all, of the Russian-speaking populations of the former Soviet Union. Um, and that means, you know, that he, he maybe has his eye on some, some NATO states. I, mean, I don't think he can get them, right? But, like, I think that he wants Estonia and Lithuania and Latvia back, too. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's a scary moment because when you have a revisionist power like that, um, sort of smacking right up against the edge of a, of a major military alliance and everybody's nuclear armed, Putin does not appear to be, um, you know, shuffling a full deck right now, just in terms of what, you know, what you can see visually. And, um, you know, mutually assured destruction doesn't, doesn't really work if one of the people's super crazy and lost their minds. So, um, you know, a lot of people are 
are worried about this, um, stressed out about the possibility of accidental war breaking out. You've got some people calling for imposition of no-fly zones over Ukraine or send NATO forces in, call their bluff. You know, there won't be a nuclear war. It's like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I don't want to find out. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, this is a situation with no easy answers. And uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I said, man, I'm kind of glad I'm not running American foreign policy right now because this is this is really a, this is a tough one um, in, in terms of knowing where to um, where to pull back, how much pressure to apply, how much damage do you want to do to Russian society um, in the in the interest of punishment? Will that achieve anything? Will it escalate matters? I, you know, these are really hard questions um, with not a lot of track record to go on in terms of evaluating past instances. So. That's where we are. Yeah. Uh, just so for our younger listeners, uh, the Soviet Union, and I feel compelled to do this, uh, David. I, I realize <laughs> time passes and just because so, you and I know something so well because uh, we lived through it. It uh, doesn't mean everyone does. The Soviet Union was a communist state that was uh, sort of the United States opposite, opponent, if you will, in this global battle for who would run the world, I guess is the best way to just sum it all up. I lived it with the Cold War's utter insanity. Uh, and um, it was a collective or a union of a lot of countries that have nothing to do with each other, that are odds with each other, uh, war with each other down through history. At one point or another, the Soviet Union really controlled all of Eastern Europe, Poland, et cetera, and so forth, East Germany. And it fell apart uh, in 1991. Uh, and uh, so when you think about the might uh, of the Soviet Union and the notion that Putin, who, by the way, was a KGB operative, you should know this, ladies and gentlemen, the president of Russia used to, was a KGB operative as a secret police for the Soviet Union, as sort of their equivalency of our CIA. Uh, when you, uh, when you think that Putin is in his own, uh, way trying to piece the Soviet Union back together without communism, so it's this weird form of capitalism, oligarchs, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and uh, as though somehow or other this is a Russian cause, how deep, in your opinion, is that narrative uh, accepted in Russia today? How, what portion of the Russian population really fervently shares the Putin narrative uh, regarding the demise of the Soviet Union? That's, I, I don't know that that's possible to know. Um, like the biggest issue with polling authoritarian countries <laughs> is you really can't be sure that anyone's telling you the truth. I mean, you know, if you answer the phone and it was a pollster on the other end being like, what do you think about the end of the Soviet <laughs> Union? Um, and you knew that if you gave the wrong answer, like if it wasn't a pollster, if it was the KGB and you gave the wrong answer, you could be thrown into prison. Um, I, just, I just tell them whatever they wanted to hear. Um, I, I think that I think that similar splits between sort of urban, you know, cosmopolitan areas and, and, and more rural places probably are the same in Russia as they are here. You know, I'm guessing people in Moscow are not super happy um, that they've been cut out of the international financial system overnight. Um, their savings are gone. Um, I'm sure we're going to see runaway inflation coming. Um, it's like, these are severe disruptions to every, everyday life um, for, for city dwellers in Moscow who are now under curfew. Um, and, uh, I, I don't think that, I, I doubt that most of them really care, um, who, who governs Ukraine, you know, the, the people that are, 
um, that are upset about this are they're conservatives, right? They're people that, um, that that think there's some halcyon past to, to harken back to, like the Soviet Union was a great place or something, instead of a, a horror show. Um, and so I, I you know, I, I can't I can't really speak to this because I'm not a Russia expert, but um, you know, I, I think people who are fervent nationalists, um, conservatives, people who, who believe that, that the Russia has been wronged by recent history are, are more likely to support what's happening right now. Um, I'm guessing younger, um, you know, people who have grown up and spent their whole lives in the post-Cold War era, I can't imagine that they see much good in this. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just the people who remember the old days who, who want to get the gang back together. <laughs> Um, and, and the people that are like, no, man, I just want to go to Starbucks and, you know, <laughs> watch Netflix. Um, you, you know, they're like, what, 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 what are we doing here? You know, we're wrecking two countries at the same time for no reason. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm imagining that your, you know, your average young professional in St. Petersburg or Moscow is just as, um, just as shocked as the, as the rest of us are. Um, and I think we've seen some pretty significant demonstrations in different parts of Russia that suggest, you know, there's at least opposition to what's happening. It's, um, not, they're not unified behind this. It's very different, right, to say we're being invaded versus we're invading. Um, when you start a war, you know, you really have a, have a very good reason um, because for the most part, people are only willing to tolerate war um, if they believe that their vital interests are being threatened. Now, that said, you know, it's a mostly a closed media system in Russia. Um, not, not a hundred percent. Right. But, um, he, he has control of the state media in Russia today and he can tell people whatever he wants to tell them. Oh, there's uh, the Ukrainian government's committing a genocide against Russians in the East. You know, if you believe that, then uh, of course you would want to do this, right? If you, if you believe that Russians are being slaughtered, um, in large numbers by the Ukrainian government, then of course you'd want to go overthrow it. Um, but, uh, but there's no way to keep a lid on, on reality like that. Right? I think most people are savvy enough to get around the, the censorship and get, get the story that's being told elsewhere. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, one of the responses I've heard from uh, folks on the left uh, in this country, it's, it's not a uh, uh, praise of Putin. Uh, it's not condoning what he did. Uh, but it's this statement. I've heard it a lot. Uh, that to some degree, NATO, United States, provoked Putin by trying to expand uh, NATO uh, into Ukraine or even suggesting that Ukraine would join uh, NATO and just in general expanding NATO till it's very close to the Russian borders. And that was a provocation uh, that in retrospect was not wise. Uh, what's your response to that uh, assertion? You know, this, uh, this is another tough one about which I don't have extremely strong feelings. Um what, what you're looking at here is, is two narratives of, I guess, what caused Putinism. You know, in one narrative, it was primarily actions of the West and the Western Bloc and NATO sort of triumphantly expanding its its military lines to the frontiers of Russia, but pretending that it wasn't aimed at Russia. You know, um, they say like, well, can Russia come in? And it's like, no, but well, it's definitely not aimed at you, but you're never allowed to join. <laughs> you may never join. Um and, uh, and, and believing that, that NATO expansion, um, as well as some things that other things that happened in the nineties, um, in the Balkans, which is like, you know, U S intervention in the, in the Yugoslav wars of succession and, um, the bombing of Serbia in 1999, 
um, as part of an effort to protect ethnic Albanians in Kosovo. These were also viewed in Moscow as, as provocations. You know, that that was uh, that, that was Russia's backyard. Serbia has always had a close relationship with Russia, um, so on and so forth. So it wasn't just NATO expansion. Right? It was NATO expansion plus um, a clear effort to expand NATO's power and reach um, into areas that were not part of NATO, but that, that Russia considered to be part of its backyard. Now, I'm not saying that any of this was wrong, right? But the way that it was seen from Moscow um, was a was a kind of encirclement. Um, the uh, the other narrative here is that NATO expansion was a successful effort to get as many of these countries into a protective military alliance as they could, or like before Russia awoke from its its geo strategic slumber. You know, in other words, they knew Russia was weak. They knew eventually someday that uh, that Russia's power would would come back online. Uh, maybe not to the extent that it, it was powerful as the Soviet Union, but you know, Russia is still a, a large country in command of a lot of natural resources and um, relatively educated population. Right? Like, I mean, it was not going to be a basket case forever. Um, and so it was like, yeah, of course we knew. <laughs> like, we, of course we knew that someday there would be another threat from Russia. That's why we got these countries in. Um, and if you go and you ask somebody in like Latvia or Estonia or Poland or Romania right now, are you glad that you joined NATO? The answer is yes. Um, the answer is that they can't be touched because they're in NATO. And the reason that Ukraine can be touched is because it's not in NATO. Um, and, and until Putin launched this like full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine, with bombing of residential areas and just this pretty savage brutality, um, I think you could make an argument. Like, okay, maybe NATO expansion was not a great idea. Um, I find it a lot harder to make that case these days, just, just to be honest with you, because what you have to claim is not only um, that not expanding NATO would have changed the trajectory of Russian politics. In other words, Putin would never have come to power in the first place. Um, but also, um, you know, that we would be able to, I, I guess it's just like the, all these other countries would now be in the position that Ukraine is in. Um, in other words, objects of Russian um, revisionist attacks um, with no real military alliance backing them other than, you know, everybody wants to funnel weapons into their hands, but but they're not willing to fight. Um, and so I, I think it's, uh, you know, I know that the American left has always been skeptical of NATO and, um, and, and I, you know, it, particularly in the 90s when there was no real meaningful adversary, I was also skeptical of it. I mean, every, people spent the 90s asking, like, what is NATO for? <laughs> If there's no if there's no real threat from Russia, Russia's weak. We have a fairly good relationship with it now. What are we doing here? You know, is, is NATO a peacekeeping organization? Are we here to keep the peace in Europe? Are we going to keep the peace in North Africa? What's it for? It's it's very it's 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 once again I'll say this it's once again clear what NATO is for. <laughs> right, um, NATO is to protect countries against uh, largely against Russia, um, and that's sad and unfortunate. And maybe things could have been different. But the, to, in my mind, the more we debate NATO expansion, the less time we're thinking about what, how to move forward. Um, and the way to move forward is not, um, I don't know if you saw this like extremely disastrous statement that the DSA put out last week, um, calling for uh, unilateral American withdrawal from NATO, like right now. <laughs> um, just uh, really, just not the thinking of a serious organization. So 
That's not going to happen. Um, but we do, we're in a crisis and the crisis is multifaceted. Right? There's massive civilian suffering. There's a huge refugee crisis brewing. Um, there's the question of like, is, is Putin going to stop at Ukraine or not? Um, it's hard to see how he's going to move beyond Ukraine when he's had trouble conquering Ukraine in the first place and is already having a lot of supply problems. So I wouldn't be overly worried if I was Poland, but um, certainly the, the reality that we have NATO and Russian military forces operating in close proximity to one another, even if they're not fighting um, with nuclear forces on high alert and tensions high and uh, Lindsey Graham saying he wants to assassinate Vladimir Putin just a deranged thing that our senator from South Carolina said yesterday. These are the kind of situations that can get out of hand fast. Um, and so it's it's important that our leaders are careful with the things that they say and the actions that they take. Um, of course, what is happening to the Ukrainian people is a tragedy, um, but it is not it is not worth accidentally triggering um, nuclear annihilation. <laughs> it's just not. Um, and so it's everybody's kind of between a rock and a hard place here, um, feeling feeling powerless to watch this suffering unfold. Um, and uh, you know, I think underlined by, by the by the heroism of the of the Ukrainian president who's, who has stayed in Kiev and um, and not fought himself, but you know, you could see a lot of people being like, "Okay, uh, this was fun. I'm going to go to Poland now. Bye." <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, his videos that he's shooting or, uh, you know, the guy was a, the guy was an entertainer before and you can see, um, see he has some of that, uh, that stage magic left in him. Oh, this is a 21st century version of Winston Churchill in 1940. I mean, that's what this is with Zerlinski, you know, Churchill didn't leave, uh, England. Uh, he was defiant he gave speeches on a regular basis, even if he was hidden underground somewhere. He was with his countrymen, uh, and uh, I do, I do, do, I do see parallels. Uh, all right, so trying to find a way out of this situation. Do you see any country that could act as a go-between that has the authority that has? Um, what the ear of Putin, uh, he's not, he would not be paranoid of that country that could somehow or other find a face saving way uh, for Putin to stop destroying Ukraine. Let's just put it as simple uh, as I can. Just stop the bombing, stop the shelling, stop the destruction uh, so that everybody can breathe a little bit and get her out of it. Do you see any country in the world? that has that kind of credibility with Putin? Um, you know, m my understanding is the country in Europe with the best relationship with Putin is France. Um, you know, partially, I think France is the least dependent on Russian natural resources in, in those peer countries because France is heavily nuclearized um, and just doesn't need the, the energy resources that come out of Russia as much as some of the others. And and Macron has, uh, has spent the last month um, trying to stop this. Unsu but unsuccessfully, you know, for, for all of the relationship that he may have with Putin and all the effort that he put into trying to head this invasion off at the past, it, it didn't happen. Um, and so what I, I think what really needs to happen here is, is, a, is a ceasefire. Um, and, uh, and talks can be held directly between Ukrainian and, and Russian delegations. 
because there has to be some kind of divisible issue here that could be worked out. And in my mind, it's it's worth swallowing some very painful compromises um, if it stops what is happening to the to the human beings who are fighting each other in Ukraine. That could be a pledge not to join NATO, uh, you know, a pledge of neutrality, you know, I don't know, demilitarized borders or something. You're not going to demilitarize an independent Ukraine. Okay, nobody's going to agree to that. Um, but I think that there are some things in between that that could be agreed to. The problem is that Putin's spoken ambitions here are not just to make sure Ukraine never joins NATO, but to but to force NATO to withdraw its forces from other countries in Eastern Europe that are part of the alliance. Um, and, and that's not going to happen. My theory, again, is that what he really wanted was just to get rid of Zelensky um, and, and impose a, a sort of a Russian-aligned government on Ukraine without having to, to employ this level of force. And now that he has not been able to get that done, um, the situation has actually become more dire because there's a sense in which Putin may view his choices as um, as humiliation or mass murder. You know, and what's the what's the middle ground that gets him out of Ukraine without further destruction of Ukrainian cities that would allow him to claim that he achieved something? Um, you know, as much as we might all like this to end with with Russia's uh, humiliation and Putin getting overthrown, you cannot bank on that. Um, and and a and a solution that allows him to declare victory and go home, um, reconstitute the real Ukrainian government that was elected in 2019, um, stop the fighting, stop the killing. Perhaps some perhaps there's some territorial revision here. Like okay, the international community recognizes that Crimea is part of Russia. Um, the international community agrees to some sort of process um, to, to settle disputes in, in the other eastern provinces that Putin has now claimed are independent republics. Uh, I, you know, I would go as far as to hey, recognize those republics. If that's what it takes, right? If you could save a million people's lives by giving uh, Lugansk to, to Russia, to, to do it, you know? Um, so and that, that's, uh, that's on Zelensky too, right? I mean, Zelensky has to be willing to make some some difficult compromises. I think that he has been hoping this whole time that, you know, that NATO would would be sort of forced by international public opinion and pressure and, and the scenes of carnage, that NATO would be kind of forced to intervene here. Um, and that, again, I really don't think that's going to happen um, for a direct military intervention. And, and that means Zelensky's choices are also ultimately at the end of the day um, going to mean defeat or, or some sort of really painful compromise. I, I just don't see another way. Um, and, and as long as no one's talking, you, you can't compromise. And you can't compromise while the shooting is happening. Uh, and so in my mind, the I, I'm not an international diplomat, Ben, so I don't know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, I just, uh, you know, we could analyze things from a, a certain remove here. But um, in my mind, the most important thing would be to get a ceasefire and get people in the room together and figure out what they really want. Um, and I, I don't think Zelensky should agree to do that really until, um, until there's a real ceasefire. Um, and perhaps they, they can, if they have agreed today to create humanitarian corridors as they call them to get people out, but that's obviously not a long-term solution to the problem here. And not everybody's going to flee. Some people are going to stay and fight. So, um, that, that maybe decrease the number of innocent people who will be killed, but it, it's not going to, um, not going to eliminate it. So. Just uh, 
just a nightmare, really. Yeah, it is a nightmare. Yeah. It's bleak. I would uh, mend what you said. Get people in a room and uh, get them what they really want. Uh, and uh, I would pr- put it this way. Uh, get them in a room and get them uh, to agree to what they can settle on. And because I don't think anybody in this situation is going to get what they really want. Uh, so uh, and I and I'll st- and I'll continue where we began. I mean, I've seen so many examples in my lifetime in the United States, my beloved home country. I've lived here my whole life uh, just unilaterally going into another country and declaring declaring it has some interest in that. Uh, I just I don't know if you were following these things when uh, the United States invaded Panama, uh, it it popped into my head when you said what Putin probably wanted was to get rid of Zelensky. I'm like, oh, like the United States with Noriega? You know, (laughs) he just went in, took the guy, put him in U.S. jail, and then, okay, we're done. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you know. And uh, he's a drug dealer, okay? Now shut up and go back to watching the Bulls. Uh, And... um, so, you know, there's a certain, there's just powerful countries just feel they don't have to answer to anybody. Uh, but in this particular case, I think Putin will have to answer to somebody. And listen, if Afghanistan, if the Soviet occupation of a- Afghanistan is in any indication, David, what was that? How many years was that? 10 years? I can't recall at the moment. It yeah, was like 79 to 89. Yeah, 10 years. They put up with a lot of mer- death and um, destruction and so it could be 10 years of occupation so i don't it's nobody is going to win with this situation that is for certain let's talk a little bit about sort of the um uh the geopolitical chess games and maneuvering that going on the fringes of this i find fascinating Uh, i'm sure you follow them as well like the attitude of china uh, toward the conflict, the attitude of Israel. You mentioned Israel toward the conflict. Uh, each uh, one of these countries, each country has its own self-interest and has sort of been really navigating a very tight channel to try to figure out how to show opposition, but not too much opposition and don't want to antagonize Putin because they got their own relationships with Putin that are beneficial to them. I'll talk a little about some of these collateral chess moves that are going on. Well, sure. I mean, I think the, the the elephant lurking in the room with both of these countries is that there are things going on there that they, they don't necessarily want the spotlight shined on by by making a big, you know, a big deal out of how outrageous what's happening to Ukraine is. Um, you know, China is engaged in a, you know, what I, you can really only call a genocide against the Uyghur people in, in Western China. These are uh, Muslim minorities, and they put basically the entire population into camps to reeducate them. Um, to renounce Islam and, um, uh, you know, I, for reasons that are just, just beyond why a country of, uh, or more than a billion people needs to, needs to subjugate this tiny minority in the West. Um, but it's, that's what's happening. And there's, there's the Tibet issue, but lurking beyond, beyond is Taiwan for China. Um, and it's, it's a similar, not, the, not exactly the same situation, but it's kind of a similar problem, right? Which is, uh, there's this, there's Taiwan is, not an officially recognized country by the UN. Um, China says it's part of China. The US says it's part of China while still working quietly to make sure that it doesn't become part of China. And and China wants it back um, and has been working for years and years and years now to build up the military capacity 
to be able to cross the Straits of Taiwan and, and invade the country and, and forcibly reincorporate it into, into mainland China. Um, and so you'll, you'll notice probably a real reluctance for China to, um, to condemn this too loudly because they want to do it too. Um, and there's some irony here because both of these countries have been, uh, both Russia and China have been very determined, um, to stand up for the principle of state sovereignty. That is, they don't want to endorse a principle that the international community can come into a country and intervene because there's a humanitarian crisis or there's something that they don't like. Um, this, this, uh, what they call responsibility to protect doctrine, um, that calls on the international community to, to, uh, intervene in, inside of countries to protect vulnerable populations from, from being slaughtered. It's just poison in Russia and China, right? Because they want to, they want to be able to continue abusing their own citizens and indefinitely. Um, and so that's why Putin has to frame this, um, not as a violation of sovereignty, but as the restoration of it. Um, this is why China will not get up and say like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's wrong to use coercion to change borders because they want to revise borders too. Um, and they don't want to, they never want to acknowledge that Taiwan is a real place, um, that does not want to be incorporated in mainland China. I hope I'm making sense here. It's just, um, it, it, it is really complex, um, but, you know, Russia and China have a, a, a friendly relationship. Um, I think that China doesn't want to be caught too far out here in, in terms of endorsing the invasion. They also don't want to alienate Putin. And they also don't want to say anything or do anything that would foreclose the possibility of, of, of Beijing kind of going into Taipei and, and, and reincorporating it. Um, yeah. And also there's uh, all kinds of... Uh, financial uh interests that are um on the fringes of this uh for instance i noticed i, I said this earlier in the week in one of his shows uh, volvo which i didn't i was not unaware of this is owned by a chinese holding company uh and they announced that they were going to uh join the sanctions against uh russia and putin and i just when i read that in the business so you're, i always tell people you really want to know what's going on in the world read the business section of a newspaper okay then you really know what's going on in the world uh and i'm like i i just i just shook my head david i mean amidst the slaughter it's just where's kurt vonnegut when we need him you know a master satirist <laughs> you know got to protect those the business holding of volvo so that they will denounce the invasion the people who own Volvo effectively, who <laughs> control Volvo, won't. And it's just such a, it's so cynical. I mean, I thought Chicago politics was cynical. And it is pretty cynical, but the stakes are a little lower, I think. Uh, but it's just such a cynical posturing that I see all over the world right now. Nothing is real, David. You know, it's... Well, what what I love the cynicism of everybody hates the oligarchs now, right? They're like like the like Russian oligarchs are some special class of people um, who are different than other billionaires, right? And I'm like, okay, as long as we're seizing yachts and stuff, can someone you know, can we send someone to Jeff Bezos's house and take all his stuff too? Um, it's like that's what the, oligarchs just another way of referring to billionaires, man. I mean, we have them too, so uh, it's not like. Um, it's not like something we don't have here, right? As the, yeah, these like rich jerks with their three hundred million dollar yachts and stuff. We got plenty of that in America too. You oh know? my it's, god! It's, it's like really not the issue here, right? I mean, sure, yeah. freeze their assets if you want. Like, I don't care. Um, I don't think that's really going to change anything. But um, let's let's not pretend that 
that we don't also practice a form of gangster capitalism here that, that enriches a very small number of people at the expense of everyone else. Um, and, uh, but you know, on a, on a serious note, the, it is, it is depressing to see this happening because I think that the great hope of sort of American economic policy in the nineties and two thousands was that increased global integration and trade ties and NAFTA and WTO and all this stuff that, that people just wouldn't go to war because there'd be too much at stake. You know, uh, they were too integrated, um, the, the, the new digital tools that we have, we're inflicting a level of, of economic misery on Russia right now. This wouldn't have been possible like 20 years ago. Um, and you, you would think that countries would not be willing to risk that level of economic calamity to pursue, um, you know, their goals through force. And Putin is just proving that to, to all be wrong. I mean, he's so far willing to pay seemingly limitless costs to his own people, to his standing in the world, um, to Russia's ties with other countries that are going to be very hard to put together, uh, even if there is a settlement here. Um, the, the after effects of this are going to last for a very long time. And so the whole theory of the post-Cold War peace, you know, like, let's, you know, uh, reduce tariffs and, um, and reduce um, uh, nationalism and, you know, integrate the EU, all, all this stuff, you know, it's, it's hard to square with, with, uh, with a powerful country essentially committing economic suicide um, to reincorporate some territory that it had lost 30 years ago. <laughs> you know? Well, well I, uh, I'll just one more time add, I feel compelled to add that any of these so-called principles of non-intervention, uh, any of these so-called principles of having uh, international trade agreements uh, that uh, cover up our differences uh, were thrown out the window after 9-11. The United States invaded two countries. And, and you said it best, Putin was watching. And so it's really hard to proclaim, this is a slick Willie Clinton stuff, proclaim that they figured out a way because your pals have cut a deal <laughs> with, you know, their pals in uh, China or Japan or wherever, say, well, we found a way to achieve peace in our time. And then you, <laughs> let's go invade Iraq. You know, and, and I got to say, I'm laughing because it's so dark. It's not funny, but it's like going back to Kurt Vonnegut. So much of in this documentary, he just laughs because he's seen, David, the stuff he's seen as a prisoner of war, as a soldier in his life, he just you got to laugh at it because it's just so freaking absurd. So I just have to point that out. You know, you're right. There was this notion that these treaties would save us, but at the same time we were invading countries. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I always, I've increasingly think of the 2000 presidential election as like the, the fulcrum point where we went from a possibly more hopeful future to this, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it had profound implications for the Supreme Court. I, I, I don't know what Al Gore would have done in response to 9-11. Maybe he would have done Afghanistan, but I don't think he would have done Iraq. Um, and uh, just all of the, just all of the ugliness that, that has, that has blossomed since that, since that stolen election. Um, and the, the, the consequences of American foreign policy behavior in the 2000s, not just Iraq and Afghanistan, but, you know, stuff like uh, not implementing the Kyoto Protocol, but not joining the International Criminal Court, um, 
not joining the landmine treaty, right? Like we have been behaving for more than 20 years um, as if we don't actually believe that a rules-based international um, order is possible if those rules have to apply to us, right? Um, and so here you have another powerful country declaring that the rules don't apply to them. Um, and uh, we, we may not like it, but we also a little bit need to look in the mirror here um, and ask ourselves, ask ourselves why multiple Republican administrations um, have been working towards destroying an international order that we put in place that was beneficial to us um, and that that really needs to survive in some form as our power is declining um, and Chinese power in particular is increasing. Um, we didn't just put that order into place because we could because we were powerful at the time. We wanted to, we wanted to ensure um, that if the United States found itself at some point not as powerful as it once was, hello, we're here, it's 2022, um, that these rules would still exist um, or at least could still be fought for. Um, and so when this all blows over, I would really like to see a concerted effort to repair some of the damage that has been done by Republican administrations in, in the past 20 years. Um, that is demonstrate with, with American action, our commitment to fighting climate change, to um, prosecuting war criminals, all, all the stuff that we decided we, we didn't want to do because, you know, we didn't want our people thrown in front of the ICC, um, you know, which they would have been some of them um, because of Iraq. So anyway, that's, just All right, that's, rave about. <laughs> I, uh, that's a good place to close it because that's a tinge of optimism <laughs> on a very pessimistic show, a tinge of optimism, uh, the notion that this will pass and then we could clean up the mess. Uh, I, I really hope you're right. I got a feeling in two weeks when you come back, we'll probably still be talking about this in some form or another. I think so. Yeah, um, anyway, uh, David, thank you so much for taking the time. And if you have some time, I urge you to watch the Kurt Vonnegut. I get the sense that you're a Kurt Vonnegut fan as well. He's on my mind a lot these days. Uh, and, uh, it's a, it's a rare, it's done by a, um, a guy named, uh, Robert Whitey, who is a funny guy himself. He's a, uh, a writer for Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so it's, it's I'll kind check of, it out for sure. yeah, it's, it's, it's on, um, I think it's Hulu. I think I saw it Ooh. on, but okay. Well, we'll talk about it next time. Yeah. Yes, we will. All right, David Ferris. Thank you very much. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.